Over the last number of weeks, we've been uh, walking slowly through the book of First Peter, and this morning we will be wrapping that series up. Uh, so if you'd like to open your Bibles with me to First Peter chapter 5, we're going to be looking at verses 6 through 11. And throughout Peter's letter, what he's really been striving to do, just uh, by way of a little bit of summary, is to give us a rich identity in Christ to help us understand as Christians who we are in Jesus. And then as Christians, how are we to live in the world with this rich identity in this world that is hostile to us because of the God that we serve? So there's been a a strong theme of Christian suffering that runs throughout uh, the book of 1 Peter. And as we approach uh, the end of the book here in verses 6 through 11 of chapter 5, what Peter is seeking to do is really give his closing thoughts on this theme that runs throughout his letter of Christian suffering. And we've seen it over and over and over again. We've seen how we ought to respond to those who are persecuting us. We've seen a lot of different elements. And here Peter closes out his letter and closes out his thoughts, really trying to help us understand the purpose that God has for us in the suffering that we go through. And as humans, we are born with a desire to have purpose. It's innate within us. Uh, This constant search for purpose in this life shows itself in our continually asking the question, why? You ever hear that question? You ever ask that question? Why? Uh, I think of uh, a little child, almost as soon as we're able to speak, um, we tell our children to do something, and and what do they say? They say, why? And then you tell them why, and then they say, why? And on and on and on it goes. We see from the youngest age that this is embedded within our nature, this need to know why, this reason, or to, to need to know the reason and purpose for everything in this life. And so we ask the question, why? Now this is especially true when we think about the topic and reality of experiencing suffering. Most often, no matter what kind of suffering you're going through, whether it's persecution for your faith or whether it's just general suffering, you typically respond by looking to God and asking, why? Why is this happening? Why am I suffering in this way? And as Peter closes out his letter here, remember he's addressing those who are suffering for their faith He gives them and us a small glimpse of the answer to that question, why? Now, he's not seeking to give us an an entire theology of suffering here in these five verses, but he is starting to give us glimpses of the answer as to why we suffer the way that we do. And as he gives us this answer, he is seeking to prepare us for suffering and to encourage us in the midst of suffering. And we'll look at this in a couple different ways. If you have a bulletin, you should have an insert in there to help guide you through the message this morning. First, we're going to see God's hand in our suffering, how God relates to our suffering in verses six and seven. 
And then before we get to God's purpose in our suffering, uh, he actually, Peter actually gives us a bit of a warning here saying that God's not the only one that has purpose in our suffering, but Satan also has purpose in our suffering. And so he deals a little bit with Satan's purpose and how we ought to prepare ourselves for his attack. And then he closes out with helping us understand what God's purpose and desire is in our suffering. So I'm going to go ahead and read the text, and then we'll get going. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 6. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Father, we come before you this morning as your children needing your word. We need to see clearly the truths that you are communicating to us in your word this morning. So I pray that your spirit will be here with us, opening our eyes, giving us understanding melting our hearts, molding our hearts, and giving us willing spirits to submit to the truth of your word. Guide us to this end. I ask this all in the name of Jesus. Amen. So as I said, he begins here by showing us what God's, uh, how God's hand is working in our suffering, God's hand in our suffering, how our suffering relates to God. In verse six, he says this, Humble yourselves, therefore. Now we have to stop at this point, and Peter is, has moved on from verse five, and he's actually saying, uh, he's giving us the reason, he's saying, therefore, humble yourselves. He, he's already said something in verse five that we need to go back and look at because he's now telling us why we should humble ourselves. And so let's go back and see the reason that he's telling us to humble ourselves. At the end of verse five, Peter says this, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And Peter there is actually quoting Proverbs 3.34, and he's helping us to understand the general principle that Proverbs 3.34 teaches us, and that is that those who are prideful, who resist the help of God, God has absolutely no desire to help. But those who are humble, those who acknowledge their need for him, he is very willing and desiring to help those people. God opposes the proud, but gives grace, comes to the aid of those who are humble. And so as a result of that reality, Peter says, humble yourselves. Therefore, humble yourselves. But in what way do you suppose that Peter is wanting us to humble ourselves? Now, there's a million different ways that we could do this. 
And we need to understand and remember the context that he is talking in. He's talking about Christian suffering. He's talking about persecution and could even be extended to suffering in general as well. So in this context, what Peter is is telling us to do is to humble ourselves, that is to submit to the suffering that we are experiencing. And he goes on to show us where God's hand is in this suffering and how we humble ourselves in relation to God as well. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. Now, Peter is using here this imagery of the mighty hand of God uh, that he actually takes from the Old Testament. It's used all over the Old Testament, and it conveys two different realities to us about God. The first is just his power, his control over all things with a mighty right hand. He rules and reigns over all. And the second thing that it references is God's hand of deliverance of his people from their troubles. And so Peter is using this imagery and telling us to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. So what Peter is doing here is he's tying together the suffering that we are experiencing to God's mighty hand and that we ought to humble ourselves underneath it. See, what Peter is telling us we must do is accept that God has allowed us to go through the suffering that we are going through. With his mighty right hand, he controls it all. And he is allowing us to go through it and to humble ourselves underneath that is for us to acknowledge God's hand in our suffering. And this may cause some of you to become discouraged from hearing this. But we must not forget that with the same mighty hand that God allows us to walk the path of suffering, it is with that same mighty hand that he will deliver us and sustain us in the midst of that suffering. That is what Peter is communicating here and he goes on to say that more clearly in verse seven. So what does it look like in the midst of our suffering to, very practically speaking, humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God? What do we actually do? How does that manifest itself? Peter says it looks like, verse seven, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. That's what it looks like to humble yourself under the persecution, under the suffering, submitting to the will of God in it is by casting your cares on him, casting your anxieties on him in relation to what you are going through. You see, the proud person who God opposes will will not take his cares to God. He will say, I'm gonna take care of myself. I'm gonna gonna worry about things. I'm I'm gonna see if I can control it. I'm gonna see if I can fix it. The proud person doesn't look for help outside of himself. What Peter is saying here is that humility in relation to our suffering looks like going to God with all of our cares, casting our anxieties and worries at his feet, trusting that he is indeed in control of it and believing that he will sustain us in it and that he will one day finally and fully deliver us from it. 
And we are told that as we humble ourselves in this way in relation to our suffering, there's a promise for us. He tells us, humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time God may exalt you. At the proper time he will give you his grace. He will sustain you and he will finally and fully deliver you at the appointed time. Peter here is revealing to us the attitude of humility that we ought to have in relation to our suffering, in relation to our suffering for the name of Christ. And he now turns to address Satan's purpose in our suffering, how we should prepare for his attack and how we should respond to his attack. In verse eight, he says, be sober-minded, be watchful, Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. So as I said, the first thing Peter tells us is how we prepare for the enemy and his attacks. Then he talks a little bit about the enemy, and then he says how we respond to him. So firstly, how do we prepare ourselves for the enemy's attack in the midst of our suffering. He says first, be sober-minded, be sober-minded. And what we often think about when we think about being sober is in the physical sense of not being mentally impaired by a, a strong drink or some type of substance. When we think about being sober, that's where our minds naturally go. But that's not what Peter is talking about here in relation to physically speaking. He's talking about a spiritual sober-mindedness, a keeping a watch on our souls. And what this looks like is in relation to our suffering is that in the midst of our suffering, our minds must be clear. They must be clear. They must understand God's hand in our suffering and his purposes for it which we will go over in just a moment. But that's what Peter is getting at here of sober-mindedness and preparing ourselves for that time of suffering and the attack that Satan will draw on us in that moment. We must be prepared for it by being sober-minded. We must also be watchful, preparing our souls for a spiritual attack. This word watchful is kind of used, uh, Peter is trying to draw our minds to military and warlike situation where a soldier would be out on the, the battlefield and continually being watchful for the attacks of the enemy. Peter is saying that that is the mindset that we should have in relation to our enemy, specifically when we find ourselves in a time of suffering, because that is when Satan is often most active in our lives. So how do you grow in sober-mindedness and in watchfulness? How do you you prepare yourself to be more sober-minded and to be more watchful? You grow in sober-mindedness and in watchfulness by guarding what you take into your soul. by guarding what you take into your soul? Are you taking false teaching into your soul that will cloud your thinking in your season of suffering? Right now when you're not in the midst of it, 
What are you accumulating? What are you feeding your soul with? Are you taking in prosperity gospel preachers that tell you there's no room for suffering in your life? That it's always bad, that God has nothing good to bring of it? Or are you cultivating a theology and understanding of God's relation to suffering that can withstand the storm when it comes? You see, what we believe about God when our season of suffering arrives will largely determine whether our faith will stand in the midst of our suffering or whether the suffering will completely destroy our faith. Understanding, being sober-minded, being watchful, having a biblical, truthful theology about God's hand in our suffering is essential to withstand the day of suffering. What are you feeding your soul with? Are you preparing yourself for that season and for the attack of the enemy? We must prepare ourselves by being sober-minded and watchful. And the reason why is because we have an adversary, the devil, who is prowling around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Satan is seeking to use our suffering to devour us. I want to help us understand he's using very strong imagery here for, for the action of the devil in relation to us. He's prowling around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. That's very strong. We need to make a distinction here. What Peter is not saying, I believe, is that he's not saying that this is the way that Satan attacks us, that he attacks us by coming at us like a roaring lion and we being his prey. I think that what he's getting at by giving us this imagery is showing us the seriousness of the situation we find ourselves in. Therefore, calling us to watchfulness. And the reason why I say that is because I believe that Satan is much more sly and much more cunning and crafty than a lion. I think that he's more like a serpent. And so how does Satan use your suffering to devour you? Satan's ultimate purpose in your suffering is to destroy your faith. It's for you to completely turn away from Christ and no longer follow him. Just as was his ploy with Job to get him to curse God, it's the same for us. He's trying to destroy our faith. That is his ultimate purpose. How does Satan go about doing that? Remember, we're talking about our season of suffering. It's very, his attacks are very potent in that season. Firstly, Satan is seeking to destroy your faith by causing you to doubt your standing before God, to doubt what God's word has said about you. As we experience suffering, Satan begins to whisper in our ear, you think you're a follower of Christ? He would never let his people suffer in the way you're suffering. Do you think he loves you? 
He would never let someone he loves suffer such things. He doesn't care about you. You think you're his child? What kind of father would allow his child to suffer such things? You're not his son or daughter. You must be a fraud. He begins to very, uh, in a very crafty and sly way, begin to tell us lies. And it's ever more potent in the midst of our suffering. First, he seeks to cause us to doubt our standing before God, what God has said to be true about us. Secondly, he seeks to weaken your desire to live for him. Satan is seeking to weaken us physically, emotionally, and spiritually so that we lose the desire to pursue God. And rather, in the midst of our suffering, in the midst of our weakened state, we go and we pursue other pleasures to cope with the pain that we're feeling, which draws us away from God. He seeks to weaken our desire to live for him. And thirdly, and most importantly, he seeks to cause you to doubt God's word and therefore doubt God himself. He begins to whisper in our ear again, God has promised to bless you. Why are you suffering then in the way that you are? Has God not said, no evil shall be allowed to befall you, no plague come near your tent, for he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways, and on their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against the stone? Psalms 91, 10, 11, and 12. Surely, if God were good, he would keep his word to you. This is the exact tactic that Satan used against Eve. He didn't come at her as a roaring lion. He came to her and said, did God really say you shouldn't eat of the tree? Did he really say that? seeking to create doubt in Eve's mind as to what God had said and therefore doubting God himself. If you're familiar with Jesus' temptation in the wilderness, Satan quotes this psalm to Jesus, seeking to twist the very, his very words. Of course, Jesus doesn't fall for it, but I think that we often do. He comes in and tells us these lies to destroy our faith, causing us to doubt our standing before God, to weaken us and to doubt God's word and therefore God himself. He's very crafty. We must be prepared for him. Peter continues on to tell us how we ought to respond to the attack of the enemy in our season of suffering. Verse nine, he says, resist him firm in your faith. Resist him firm in your faith. We ought to resist believing the lies that he tells us and should rather trust in what God says to be true. But that's really hard to do in the midst of our season of suffering, is it not? Because all that's running through our head is doubt in relation to God. 
rather than trust in him. So how are we able to remain firm, is the word Peter uses here, steady, unshaken, when this attack from Satan comes in the midst of our suffering? Before we consider what Peter says, let's consider physically how we would stable ourselves. So imagine, I'm assuming that most people have like by accident like fallen or tripped or something like that in their lifetime. Um, So this should be a good illustration. Uh, When that happens, when you begin to lose your footing, when you begin to, when you trip over something, you begin to fall to the ground, naturally what do you do? Naturally you, you reach out and you try to grab onto something to steady yourself, to keep you from falling to the ground to keep you firm and unshaken on your feet. That's what we naturally do physically when we're falling or stumbling. This is what Peter says we ought to do when we're stumbling in our faith in order to remain firm. Resist him, firm in your faith. How do we remain firm? knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. What Peter is saying is that when you begin to stumble in your faith, in your season of suffering, you reach out and you grab onto your brother. You grab onto your sister. You reach out for help. You allow them to bear that burden with you wrapping your arm around them and theirs around you. You walk side by side with them. They are able to keep your faith firm in the midst of suffering. He's telling us about the value of the Christian community, about not walking the path of suffering alone, or you will stumble, you will fall. We must reach out and grab our brother or sister. God has given us each other to bear each other's burdens in exactly these seasons. We must be prepared for the attack of the enemy. We've seen how he seeks to attack us and we respond to it by standing firm, not on our own, but relying on each other in the midst of that suffering. This is Satan's purpose in our suffering to destroy our faith. Now God, or now Peter shows us what God's purpose is in our suffering. Verse 10. He says, And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Peter begins this section by by telling us that the suffering that we experience is only for a little while. And I know that when we're in our seasons of suffering and we read that, we're like, are you kidding me, Peter? When you're in it, it doesn't feel like it's just a little while. It feels long and strenuous and hard. We have to understand what Peter is comparing our season of suffering in this life to. What is he comparing it to? After you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, this is what he's comparing it to, 
who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ. You see, Peter is comparing the sufferings that we experience in this life to the eternal inheritance of the glory of Christ that we have awaiting us. That's what he's comparing it to. So in view of that eternity, what we suffer here and now is only for a little while. And thank God for that, that we only suffer a little while. But we know that we are going on to glory to live in the presence of Christ. But for the time being, until then, God promises to give us his grace as we humble ourselves under his mighty hand. After you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Four things are listed here that God is doing or his purpose for us in our suffering. The first is what I would say is his ultimate purpose. And the word restore here is kind of a rough translation. In other translations, we see it translated as to perfect you or to make you perfect through your suffering. And I think what Peter is getting at here is that God's ultimate purpose for us in our suffering is to increase our faith, to sanctify us, to make us look more like Jesus, to bring us into conformity to his image. And notice, as we go throughout these four different things, they're going to be the exact opposite of the things that Satan is trying to accomplish in us. Satan's ultimate purpose for us is to completely destroy and devour our faith. God's purpose for us is to increase it, to make us look more like Jesus. Paul testifies to this in Romans 8, 29. He said, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined for the purpose to be conformed to the image of his son. So not only is that God's purpose for us in our suffering, that's his ultimate purpose for us, period. Holiness, conformity to the image of Christ, looking more like Jesus. Secondly, God seeks to confirm you in the midst of your suffering. Whereas Satan is seeking to cause you to doubt your standing before God, God is seeking to confirm your standing before him, to confirm your position in his family. Through your suffering for Christ, God is seeking to show you that you are united to Christ by faith, that you are a true follower of his. Again, Paul in Romans 8 says this, 16 and 17, The Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. If we read that text backwards, what Paul is saying is that suffering for and with Christ proves that we are fellow heirs with him of God, proves that we are children of God. In the midst of our suffering, God is seeking to confirm that we are his children. Whereas Satan is seeking to create doubt. Thirdly, God is seeking to strengthen 
you, to increase your desire to live for him, whereas Satan is seeking to decrease it and to steal your attention away from God and the pursuit of him. Through your suffering for Christ, God is seeking to increase your desire to live for him through allowing you to share Christ's sufferings. Sharing the sufferings of Christ should cause us to rejoice and be glad. And I know that that's hard to hear. When we understand the beauty of the gospel and how he suffered for us, being able to share in that should produce joy and gladness within us. 1 Peter 4.13, but rejoice in so far as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. You see, when the apostles suffered for Christ, they came away rejoicing. Their souls were being spurred on to continue to pursue God. It created with them a greater desire to live for him. That is what God is seeking to produce in you through your suffering. Lastly, he is seeking to establish you. He is seeking to make you firm in your faith. And what is he seeking to place beneath you that you can stand upon? His word. He's seeking to root you on the foundation of his word drawing you to believe that it is true, standing firmly on it rather than doubting it and doubting God, which is what Satan is trying to produce in us. Most importantly, he is seeking to draw us to believe his word of promise to us. What is his word of promise to us? Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you. That's his word of promise to us in the midst of our suffering. If we accept that God has allowed this and we submit to it, we humble ourselves under it, understanding his good purposes in it, he will give us grace to sustain us in the midst of our suffering and he will finally and fully deliver us from it at his appointed time. This is God's glorious and beautiful purpose in your suffering. And it's not easy to hear that when you're in the midst of your suffering because you're doubting and Satan is using that. But we must understand God's good purposes and be willing to submit to them for our good and for his glory. And lest we are led or tempted to believe that what Peter has just said God will do, he does not have the power to do, Peter closes here by offering up a praise to God which tells us about the power that he has. To him be the dominion or power forever and ever, amen. These last words should give us confidence that everything Peter has just told told us that God will do through our suffering, that he is indeed able to do. And so we rejoice and we praise him. Church, we are to be a people that humbly accept God's control over our suffering and also his care for us in the midst of it.
We are to be preparing ourselves for the attacks of the devil, understanding that he has a purpose that he's trying to accomplish in our suffering. And we must be leaning on each other in the midst of it with a firm faith. And we must be people who trust that God will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish us through our suffering. I would like to conclude this morning with a word of encouragement to those of you who find yourselves in a time of suffering. The devil's greatest weapon in destroying your faith is to cause you to doubt God's word, to cause you to doubt his promises to you, and therefore to doubt God himself. He finds many clever ways to do this, but this is always his aim. I want to tell you a story to close here as just a bit of an illustration and draw a couple things from it. Um, John Bunyan wrote this awesome book, uh, Pilgrim's Progress. It's a Christian classic. I'm sure that many of you are familiar with it. Um, if you've never read it, it's, it's, it's fantastic. I encourage you to pick it up and read it. It's basically a fictional uh, allegory of the Christian life. He follows a man named Christian, appropriately, uh, his conversion all the way through his journey of life until he reaches the celestial city, which is heaven. Um, and at the point where I'm going to pick up in the story, uh, Christian is walking with a friend named Hopeful. Um, just recently, one of his friends, Faithful, was put to death for his faith. And so Hopeful begins to follow along with Christian to aid him in his journey, to aid each other in their journey. And they, they take a rest for a night. Uh, they lay down in a field and they don't realize that they're trespassing uh, as they're sleeping and resting there. And so in the morning, this giant of despair comes and captures them and takes them back to his castle. And the name of the castle is Doubting Castle. And so he puts them in a dungeon and he begins to uh, beat them. He begins to play psychological games with them, trying to get them to kill themselves, trying to get them to give up to put their faith to an end, to put their lives to an end. And so they're in the midst of this suffering. They're talking amongst each other. What will they do? It's at this point in the story, Christian has been so strong in his faith. He's been so strong. He's been the leader. Everybody who's followed alongside of him, he's been the more mature Christian. He's been leading them. But it's at this point when he's in the dungeon of Doubting Castle, that he begins to doubt the word of God to him. He begins to become weak, begins to stumble in his faith. And Hopeful is there to encourage him and spur him on to not give up. I want to record for you how Bunyan explains their escaping from Doubting Castle. This is what he says. About midnight, Saturday night, Christian and Hopeful began to pray and continued until almost break of day. Then Christian suddenly broke out in amazement. What a fool! What a fool I am to lie here in this stinking dungeon when I might walk free on the highway to glory. I have a key in my bosom called promise, which I am sure will open any door in Doubting Castle. 
Christian goes on to take his key from his bosom called promise and opens every door in Doubting Castle until they walk out the front door and escape. Some of you this morning are in Doubting Castle. Others of you have been in Doubting Castle before and still some of you will be in Doubting Castle in the future. The key to resisting the devil in the midst of this doubt when he has us there is to hold true to the promises of God which are found in his word. That is the key to our release from Doubting Castle. That's not easy to do in the midst of your suffering. That is why we must not walk alone. Had Hopeful not been there with Christian to spur him on, for Christian to be able to reach out and grab on to Hopeful, he would have given up. Bunyan makes that clear. He would not have survived Doubting Castle. We must walk with each other continually, preparing each other for the fight and carrying each other's burdens in the suffering. All along the way, telling each other of the glories of the purpose that God has for us in the suffering. Pray with me. Father, You are so gracious and merciful to us. At first glimpse, you're telling us to to humble ourselves under your mighty hand, acknowledging that, that you allow our suffering is such a hard truth that it instantly causes doubt within us. Lord, help us to know that you are trustworthy, that you are good, and that you are faithful. Help us to cling to your promises and to not walk alone. Embed within us this glorious purpose that you have for us in our suffering. Make our spirits humble to accept it. And Lord, at the appointed time, sustain us and deliver us. Pray this all in the name of Jesus. Amen. For those of you who uh, find yourself in this place, uh, who find yourself struggling in a time of suffering, for whatever reason, whether you're suffering because you're being persecuted for your faith or you're just suffering like Job was suffering, we want to walk with you. Um, I'd love to have, have the opportunity just to talk with you, to be able to pray with you, to walk with you myself or to help you get connected with somebody who can walk with you. My encouragement and admonition to you this morning is do not walk alone. 